0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. With over 40 million Americans out of work, a global pandemic, and widespread civil unrest, the role of technology in shaping our society and its future is of the utmost importance. Microsoft President Brad Smith joined the Washington Post to discuss how we can harness innovation to promote inclusive economic recovery, stop the spread of disease, and support social justice. Let's listen.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Washington Post, and I want to welcome you to the latest in our series of conversations about the path forward. We're going to talk today with Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft and for many years its chief legal officer, one of the real experts in our country about technology and all of the legal and social issues that surround it. Uh, Brad has written a book that I've had the pleasure to talk about with him called Tools and Weapons, which looks at the at basic uh, issues that surround the technology that Microsoft has has helped pioneer. So it's wonderful to have Brad Smith here with us today for our, our conversation. And Brad, I wanna begin with the issue that America is still focused on uh, with great intensity. And that's the issue of of racial justice and police brutality. There's a very specific question I wanna start with. Uh, In recent days, a number of companies have announced that they no longer want to allow the use of facial recognition technology as broadly as they they have in the past. Amazon uh, yesterday said that it doesn't wanna share, at least for a year, that facial recognition technology with police and law enforcement. IBM made a similar statement earlier in the week. You have been thinking and writing about this issue of facial recognition technology for a couple of years. I want to ask you today whether uh, you, on behalf of Microsoft, want to do what some have called for and take a stand on this issue uh, on behalf of Microsoft.
0: Well, no, first of all, David, thank you. It's it's nice to be with you. It always is good to be with you and to have this conversation. Um, you know, we have been focused on this issue for two years uh, and we've been taking a principled stand and advocating not only for ourselves, but for the tech sector and under the law, a principled stand for the country and for the world. Um, as a result of the principles that we put in place, we do not sell facial recognition technology to police departments in the United States today. Uh, but I do think this is a moment in time that really calls on us to listen more, to learn more, and most importantly, to do more. Uh, you know, given that, you know, we've decided that we will not sell facial recognition technology to police departments in the United States until we have a national law in place grounded in human rights that will govern this technology. Uh, We'll also put in place some additional review factors uh, so that we're looking at other potential uses of this technology that go even beyond what we already have uh, for other potential scenarios. Uh, The number one point that I would really underscore is this, we need to use this moment to pursue a strong national law to govern facial recognition that is grounded in the protection of human rights. Uh, I think it's important to see what IBM has done. I think it is important to recognize what Amazon has done. It is obviously similar to what we are doing. But if all of the responsible companies in the country see this market, to those that are not prepared to take a stand, we won't necessarily serve the national interests or the lives of the Black and African American people of this nation well. We need Congress to act, not just tech companies alone. That is the only way that we will guarantee that we will protect the lives of people.
1: And and Brad, I take it from what you just said that you will be working actively lobbying for such legislation in coming months, uh, and I assume that Microsoft is an industry leader trying to bring the industry with you in that lobbying effort for national legislation that uh, oversees how these technologies are used by police.
0: That's right. We've been advocating for laws in the United States and indeed around the world. Am I? personally have carried this message uh, to more than a dozen countries and have been asking governments to act. We've been working with other uh, companies across the industry and with advocacy organizations and civil liberties and human rights groups as well. Um, We were encouraged earlier this year because Washington state became the first state in the country, it really became the first jurisdiction anywhere in the world, to pass a law that governs facial recognition technology specifically. And I think it was an important first step. Uh, It actually restricts, for example, how the police can use facial recognition technology. And we recognize that there is a vibrant discussion and even debate about how far the law should go. There are some who would like to see the law go farther than it did in Washington state. And this is exactly the time to have this conversation. And I think, as is so often the case, as you, as I think, have recognized, you know, the states are the laboratories of democracy in the United States. But this is a moment where we need national action. And if Congress can look at the Washington state law, discuss how to improve upon it, I think this is the right time to take that kind of step.
1: And Brad, I should ask you, you're a global company uh, and facial recognition technology is certainly a global technology, arguably Chinese companies are the leaders uh, in this for better or worse. What do you think about uh, an international uh, ban for Microsoft on the sale of these technologies to law enforcement uh, organizations around the world, not simply in the United States?
0: Well, we we already have put in place, uh, you know, rules that that govern our activities in this space. Um, And, you know, people often ask us about China in particular, and we, we put in place over the past year uh, you know, technological uh, gating rules to ensure uh, that our facial recognition technology would not be used there, uh, and you know, we will certainly be prepared to look at where there may be other situations. You know, the short story is we are committed to ensuring that this technology is not used in a way that would put people's human rights at risk. Uh, I think that's the long and, and short of it. Um you know, we do recognize that there are other uses of facial recognition that we all probably use every day. You know People use it to unlock their iPhone. Uh, they use it with a Windows laptop. Uh, there are organizations that we work with uh, in other countries. To identify, you know, missing family members, you know, people who might turn up in an emergency uh, room and the like, um, you know, so we've always tried to be thoughtful, and that does require that we be detailed. Um, but you know, the the short uh, bottom line for us is to protect the human rights of people as this technology is uh, evolving and as it's deployed.
1: And before we leave this uh, important subject, I want to ask a slightly broader question. One of the demands that protesters have been making over the last week is defund the police. Uh, There are different descriptions of what that might mean. But one obvious um, issue that might be involved there is reducing funding for high technology applications that give police extraordinary surveillance powers. Again, this is something you've thought deeply about. Maybe you could just summarize your own view on defunding certain technology applications as we think about law enforcement in America.
0: It's a really important question, and uh, I think as is so often the case, these conversations start and then we have an opportunity to get into uh, details. Yeah, I I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that this is, in fact, the first year of the fifth century of institutionalized racism in the United States. And I think it's also important to remember that in 2014, 2015, and 2016, uh, there were tragedies across the country that got a lot of attention, and these have continued ever since. Um, But we launched a criminal justice initiative and then have uh, organized this and have put more funding behind it each year since the middle of the past decade. And from my perspective, David, I think the number one question for us as a technology company is how can we use data and technology to better protect people's rights? Uh, And here I I think that it's not just the use of digital technology by the police forces of the country, although that can be important, it's also by the the civil rights and nonprofit groups. And I think what we would really like to see uh, is more effort put into data and transparency, so that every community uh, in this country, let's remember there's 18,000 police departments in the United States, Uh, so that every community in the country uh, has access to information about how many complaints have been filed against police officers, what was the nature of those complaints, what was the response, uh, and what was the discipline, if any, what kinds of provisions are in place, including under local labor union contracts, that might make it easier or more difficult to hold police officers accountable when there is abuse um, so i appreciate that there are areas where people would like to see more funding for social services we applaud that there are some areas where people think that the police should be spending less money but technology is a fundamental tool here that in the right hands meaning not just the the the, the civic authorities and the police departments but the community organizations of this country you know can help create the foundation uh, for the kinds of change uh, that are needed and and I think that's where we've been doing things every year. I think you'll see us do more uh, in the coming weeks, months, and and years because this needs to be a sustained multi-year commitment. Um, but I, I think that it's important to inject into this conversation what more we need and not just what less. These two pieces absolutely need to connect with each other.
1: It's a, a powerful idea that that technology should be, can be a tool for racial justice uh, and that that's part of the frontier ahead. Let me ask you, Brad, to turn uh, toward Microsoft itself. You and your CEO, uh, Satya Nadella, have been uh, encouraging a series of of conversations within Microsoft and sharing the experiences of African-Americans who work for Microsoft. Give us a a sense of what those conversations have been and how you think your own company will be different going forward for what we've all experienced in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder.
0: Well, I think the first thing to recognize is I do believe that this is a different moment in time from other recent years. Uh, I think think you have to go back really uh, six decades to find a similar moment in the United States. Uh, And just as that inspired a generation to take new steps to better protect the rights of the African-American and Black community, we need new steps today. Uh, Now, for those of us uh, inside a company, uh, whether it's Microsoft or any other company, I think the first thing we need to recognize is we need to change ourselves. Uh, And that's part of the conversation that we've been having uh, with our employees that we've been uh, learning Uh, We have been taking steps, but we need to move farther, and we need to go faster. Uh, And that's going to mean not just bringing more people into Microsoft uh, from the African-American and and Black community, it's going to mean investing more to ensure that people have access to the resources to succeed, uh, to see the representation uh, of this important community change at all levels at our company, including the most senior levels Uh, Of Microsoft. Uh, I do believe that it's also the case, as Santia has said, that we don't want to stop there. Uh, We recognize the broader uh, impact that we have in a variety of ways. Um, Certainly one of the things that has been important that we've been hearing in recent days, but not just in recent days. I mean, this is a conversation we've been having for a number of years, uh, is the vulnerability, the risks that you know, blacks and African Americans feel when they leave the office, when they leave their home, when they're out on a street. Uh, you know the data show us clearly uh, that you know, you're more susceptible, you're more likely to be pulled over wh- while driving, you're more likely to, to be arrested based on the color of your skin. Uh, you know this is something that I've actually been pursuing in recent years. You know, meeting with the chiefs of police, you know, we didn't start the, this conversation a month ago, but we need to use this moment to do more. And we readily recognize that. And you're going to, going to see us take more steps. The key, I think, is to make sure that we're committed on a multi-year basis, um, that we use this moment to inspire ourselves to take sustained action uh, and persist. Because, yeah, I think as you and I have talked with respect to other topics, you know, anytime you can take an important step forward, it's a good day. But what we really need to do is put ourselves on an ongoing path uh, to take step after step after step. Well,
1: let's let's make a promise here at The Washington Post to invite you back a year from now and talk about what progress has been made. I think the idea of this being a, an ongoing, continuing conversation is absolutely right. Let me turn, uh, Brad, to the other uh, great uh, trauma the country and the world are living through, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and how we will return to work uh, as, it, as it begins to d- diminish. And again, I wanna ask you to, to speak specifically about, about Microsoft. You're based in Washington state, Washington state in the beginning of this pandemic looked like the first big hotspot in America. Uh, it seemed like there was a cluster of cases and and, and somehow through good uh, public uh, health management, uh, Washington state was able to, to keep the number of cases and deaths down. Maybe you could talk about how Microsoft operated in, in that initial period uh, of the pandemic And then what you're doing now as you think about bringing employees back?
0: It's a great question. And I I do think that the business community and the business community in partnership with our our local county and state government was able to act quickly in early March to address the spread of COVID-19 in Washington state. Uh, It meant first grounding ourselves in uh, data uh, and the advice of public health authorities. Our view on this as in so many other things Is that we should be science led and data driven. Um, So we sent people home. We're fortunate we create the tools that people use to study or work from home. So, of course, our employees uh, were able to do that more easily than most. Um, I will say, I think the other thing we coupled that with was a recognition that when we closed the more than 100 buildings that we have in the Puget Sound area on our campuses, we suddenly had thousands of hourly workers who work for other companies on our campus, the people who serve the food in our cafeterias, who who drive the cars and buses, who support the audiovisual needs, who no longer had work to do. And so we coupled sending our employees home with a commitment that we would continue to ensure that all of the hourly workers are paid. And we've sustained that commitment each and every week. Um, We thought it was important to recognize that people who uh, are working on an hourly basis are far more likely to be living paycheck to paycheck. So that was our two-pronged approach. Now we're uh, obviously like everybody else in in the guise of reopening, and reopening is actually much more complicated than sending people home. I would say broadly, our role as a company has been clear, and it's been threefold, and it's been global. It has been first to use data and technology to address the public health needs of the world. Uh, That includes the decisions that are being made about opening or closing economies. It includes the delivery of healthcare services. It includes data and technology that is advancing the quest for a vaccine and for therapeutic treatment. The second part of this is all about sustaining the operations of the economy to the maximum extent possible. Um, that has involved digital technology that we've all been using, like what we're using right here. Um, But it's more than that. It's the whole host of of technologies that enable organizations to continue to operate. Uh, As we look forward, it's really the technology that will be needed to generate an inclusive economic recovery. Uh, And that in part will involve providing access more broadly to digital skills to people across the country and around the world. And finally, we've been focused on protecting privacy, uh, on protecting cybersecurity. Uh, In many ways, these issues are even more important than they were before, just because we're all relying on this technology more than we ever have before.
1: So let me ask you just to think out loud a minute about the workplace of the future, both at Microsoft but uh for the country and 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 even the world. Uh, are we going to be living in something more like a hybrid uh uh workplace where we do an awful lot more at a distance. We 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 work from home more, we 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 just don't go into the office as much. Microsoft has a suite of tools that you've been effectively uh, sharing with all of us that have helped us do our work, but are we just gonna be in a, in a different uh, workplace environment uh, for the rest of our lives because of what we just lived through?
0: It is really a fascinating question and I think it's one of the big questions of the moment. Um, I think that we're going to see uh, two phases. We're going to see an extended phase before there is the broad uh, availability of a vaccine. And especially in that phase, I think we are going to see more people working from home, ordering goods, services, food from home. Uh, And eventually, this pandemic will pass. And even after it passes, we will see some changes that will continue. One of the things that uh, we've had the opportunity to do, David, is look back and and ask ourselves, what did people in the United States in 1942 think that the post-war world would look like? Um, you know, what can we learn from the predictions that they made? And, and, and you know, to me, there's three lessons that emerge. First, uh, developments that were taking place before the war that accelerated were likely to continue to move even faster because society had to marshal all of its resources to win that war in a way that's not dissimilar to society marshalling all of, of its forces to win a war against this virus. Um, so then it was aviation. Today, it is digital technology. Uh, so I, that was accelerating, and it's accelerating even faster, and I think we should assume that that's going to persist throughout this decade. Uh, the second thing one, I think, can look at is where people changed, where government and institutions changed and worked in new ways and ways that proved important and successful. Um, you know, the... 40s represented the shift away from isolationism and the embrace of multilateralism. And that obviously continued when World War II ended. Um, One of the things we've seen is uh, governments use data in a much more sophisticated way to make these decisions. And I think we're going to see much more focus on data policies, open data policies, more sophisticated use of data uh, to drive decision making. I think those two things put together mean that we will have more remote access, um, more hybrid situations. But there's a third lesson that I found fascinating in really studying predictions made in World War II. Basically, the creators of technology that were vital in the early 1940s tended to be often overly optimistic about how their technology was going to be used forever for everything. Aviation companies in 1945 predicted that there would be a helicopter in the garage of every American home by 1950. There was a a leader at DuPont who predicted that by 1950, shoes would be made of plastic rather than leather because plastic had been so important in a number of articles that were being used in the war. So I believe that digital technology will continue to spread and we will have more remote access. But I also believe that people matter, including people-to-people, human contact. And it's not bad for us to sort of look with a a bit of skepticism or take with a grain of salt any prediction that says, gee, we're no longer going to want to get together. We're no longer going to want to have offices again uh, because we love this technology so much. I love this technology because I work at Microsoft, um, but I actually love people too, and I think that's the way most people are.
1: In in terms of technology predictions that didn't turn out, I'm personally still waiting for my personal rocket pack to strap to my back to uh, to to travel uh, across town. That hasn't happened. Let
0: me, uh, I, let me I'm, ask I'm you about. Let you go first, David. I'll watch how that works for you before I buy one.
1: <laughs> so let me ask you about another uh, fundamental trend, uh, and how you think it's likely to play out. Uh, there were there were signs before covid-19 and the global shutdown more than signs uh, our, our president was elected basically on this on this idea of moving away from globalization that globalization had not benefited uh the country as a whole uh, evenly or adequately and so the his cry was america first uh, there, there, There's a lot of discussion about whether we're going to enter a period now of deglobalization, and I want to ask you about that, and in particular, if I might, ask you about a company, a country you know well, and that's China, and whether you think we're going to be heading towards some at least partial decoupling of technology with China, where we say to Huawei, China's big supplier of telecommunications. Uh, 5G networking gear. Sorry, but we're just not going to do business with you in the in the old way. What do you think is 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 ahead in 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 this uh, area of globalization, in particular in your business of technology?
0: Well, I do think nationalism has been uh, a growing force, not just uh, in the last uh, few years, but even before that. Uh, and it has certainly accelerated. And uh, I think to uh, a certain degree, uh, it is likely to remain a, a, a geopolitical factor throughout this decade. Um, we see it in the United States and its relations with China. We see it in China uh, and how it looks uh, at some of its policies. Uh, we see an increasing focus on uh, digital sovereignty uh, in major countries in Europe. Uh, You know, there is a greater focus by many governments on how technology first and foremost can serve the needs of their own people. Um, That's a fact of life. And obviously, uh, everybody who works in the technology business needs to think about it. Uh, I do think we're seeing some adjustment in supply chains. Uh, I think we're seeing this not just in the technology markets, but in a number of other markets as well. Uh, And I think we should assume that supply chains Um, will be readjusted to some degree over the next few years. I think that in many instances, there'll be shorter supply chains uh, and there will be some distribution, redistribution uh, of where manufacturing takes place. Uh, At the same time that we uh, focus on that, I do think it's important to keep in mind that there are some critical problems for the world that we can solve only if we come together around the world. Um, COVID-19 I think is one example. This is a virus that does not recognize borders. Uh, If we think of what I continue to believe will remain one of the preeminent issues of the decade and the century, namely carbon and climate. Now, carbon once emitted into the atmosphere does not stay over the skies of a single country. Uh, It requires a global response. Uh, and I think it, therefore, requires a multilateral response. And just as multilateralism proved to be vital even throughout the Cold War, uh, multilateralism will be indispensable in the years and decades ahead. I think in this century, multilateralism needs to take on an additional aspect, and that's what we call multi-stakeholderism. Uh, if we're going to solve the great problems of the world, we need to do more than bring the governments of the world together. We need to bring together governments in in the unique leadership role they play uh, with civil society, with the non-governmental organizations, with the companies that create technology, with the business community more broadly. We have different roles to play, but we all have a role that we need to play. Uh, And I don't think we should lose sight of that. uh, Because if we do then we will likely fail in meeting the needs of the decade ahead, especially on paramount issues like climate change.
1: So uh, I'm afraid we're nearing the end of our half hour. I wanna just uh, close by noting that uh, something that Brad Smith and I have talked about often in the past is Microsoft's effort to work with the United Nations thinking about ways to have international codes of conduct for cybersecurity against cybercrime, and also do th- something about the issue Brad just mentioned of, of climate change. We'll come back uh, and have another conversation, Brad, I hope uh, about that. But I wanna just on behalf of all of our uh, viewers, thank you for a, a newsy, uh, interesting discussion of these issues that we're all living uh, through. So thank you so much.
0: It is The Washington Post, so thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.